This is an example of a gang member in El Salvador sending a WhatsApp voice message to community members warning them about the COVID restrictions they, along with the government, are imposing on a local community. This is criminal governance. Today we're heading to Central America, to Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador, known as the Northern Triangle. We're discussing a crime that is often hidden but needs criminal governance to thrive and one that is so pervasive in the region that it's been called a way of life. Extortion. Operation Raging Bull netted 53 arrests in El Salvador. The second phase of the operation uh, was conducted across the United States between October 8th and November 11th, and that concluded with 214 MS-13 arrests nationwide. The security forces see the brutal side, patrolling streets menaced by the gangs through extortion, rape and killing. They have to confront Central America's Murder, Inc. The growth in extortion in the region was defined by the expansion of street gangs MS-13 and Barrio 18. They have a stranglehold on the countries in which they operate, extorting rich and poor and even international corporations. We'd been here for just five minutes when we got news of another murder. This shop owner was shot dead in broad daylight because he wouldn't pay the gang's extortion money. Those are the rules and everyone knows them. The revenue from extortion has provided gangs in the region with a solid economic operating base and at the same time allowed them to diversify into other criminal enterprises. They are now transnational organized criminal groups. It says attempts made by Salvadoran authorities to search for and crack down on black market guns smuggled from the United States have largely failed because many security officials here, he says, are paid bribes to look the other way. This is Deep Dive, exploring organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The crime of extortion does significant damage to the economies of nations, the legitimacy of governmental institutions and the very social fabric of the communities and is considered a major driver in the displacement and forced migrations of families from the region heading north into Mexico and the United States. And it isn't just cash that is extorted, it's food, products, goods and services, and even sexual payments. And even the smallest payment has a symbolic value. They are the sign of criminal governance. Who is in authority? Which reinforces the legitimacy of criminal groups like MS-13 and Barrio 18. A Honduran business owner described extortion as a monster. But the owner, of course, says this quietly and anonymously because the risks are just too high. Perceived disrespect like this could be a death sentence. With me today is Guillermo Vasquez, a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Guillermo, how is extortion understood in Central America and how is it manifested? Well... To begin with, extortion is based on the threat of violence. 
And it goes under the assumption that the state has limited or no capacities to offer protection to citizens. In Central America, the main wage in which criminal groups or gangs exercise control over their territories and the most important way in which they affect daily life of citizens. Extortion payments reinforce the power of gangs such as Mara Salvatrucha and Barrio 18 and the control and power they have over communities. It's a very pervasive crime in the Northern Triangle countries, which are Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. In El Salvador, it's so pervasive that it's known as the rent or la renta. And in Honduras, it's known as the war tax. Gangs or maras are the main extorters, and they use their revenues to provide for their families of the gang members, as well as, for, as to pay for legal fees for gang members in prison. In Costa Rica and Panama, it's, the problem is very different. It's not extortion in itself, but it's closer to loan sharking schemes in which, which are known as gota a gota or drop by drop, which refer to small loans with high interest rates, which quickly become impossible to pay and result in, in kidnapping or torture of those that accepted the loan from those that failed to, to fulfill the payment. So basically, that's, that's the scheme that we have in Central America in the five countries that the GI is working in. And the GI has been working on extortion in Central America for a number of years, and I believe that you have identified five different types of extortion. Can you explain what they are? Yes. The first one is the territorial one, which is the most common, and it basically means that all people, businesses within the territory of a gang will pay extortion. Public transportation in these countries is one of the most heavily affected businesses. First, gangs began demanding payment from bus drivers, but they quickly realized that it was more profitable to tax or ask for extortion to the owners of the bus line. The second one is the telephone-based extortion. In this one, the victim and the extortionists never meet in person and is mostly done over the phone with co-conspirators, which are outside because the, the one that's performing the extortion is normally in prison. The one, the co-conspirator that's free, is in charge of collecting the payment and also, if needed, enforcing the threat. Revenues, again, are used to cover illicit economies that prison requires, such as improvement in living spaces, visits, telephone to extort, and even setting up small businesses in prison. The third one is sexual extortion. In this one, gangs threat family, female members with sexual violence to obtain payment that was requested. When they can provide cash, in-kind payment is accepted. This one isn't in itself a crime, but its effects are close to human trafficking as victims are forced to perform actions against their will and under the threat of violence. It is important to mention here that the research shows that the region does not have a gender-based policies against extortion and has scarce resources to prevent or provide support to sex-based extortion. For example, in Guatemala, extortion is the main driver of incarcerated women. Then the fourth form of extortion is non-monetary. The victims are forced to pay with goods or services such as food, free housing, rent, even fake employment for gang members, storage of illicit goods such as drugs or weapons, care of family members of gang members who are in prison, or even the acquisitions 
of part of businesses as a form of payment. This is probably the main way in which gangs and extortion began to blur the line between the licit and licit economy. Because by extorting businesses and them not being able to fulfill payment, they began to accept becoming part of the licit economy by sending gang members to become part of the payroll of a licit business. Or when the, the owners fail to pay, they say, okay, why don't you become my partner? And they accept half of the, the business as a form of payment. And this is the gateway to the licit economy and to other forms of criminal economies. Finally, state actors. And this is one of the other ones that is more pervasive. And this one can be bi-directional because one, gangs can charge a fee to municipal authorities to keep crime and violence low. This has happened in, in El Salvador, for example. Or authorities such as police use their power to promote extortion-related economies on the streets. For example, in Panama, at least half of all sex workers have shared that they were coerced by police officers to provide services to policemen for free, basically, or within prisons to get additional living space or to gain access to food or, or services that improve the living conditions in prison. Those are the five types of extortion that the report found. So we have the Northern Triangle countries, which is Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. What has been the economic impact from extortion on these countries? Well, given its nature and, and the threat of violence it entails, this crime is heavily underreported. And there are differences throughout the region. For example, in Guatemala, the very threat of extortion is a crime in itself, while in Honduras and El Salvador, payment is required for the crime to take place. This has led to different forms of measuring the economic impact of the crime in the region. For example, in El Salvador, it ranges from $200 million in El Salvador to $400 million in Honduras to $60 million in Guatemala. These are figures from the national bank authorities from each country. But again, it's like the holy grail in the region to gain access to how big is the economic impact is that question that needs to be answered. But extortion also enables other crimes such as money laundering to invest in illicit profits in the illicit market or drug trafficking because of territorial control enables drug retail sales or corruption such as authorities enabling the crime directly such as through state actors or indirectly to gain access to better living conditions within prisons. And even human trafficking, extortion blurs the line as it accepts in-kind payment from those who fail to pay the extortion that is requested. Extortion and lack of access to economic development are two of the main causes for human force displacement in the region. For example, the report found that 1,400 Hondurans have been internally displaced because of extortion. And the caravans from Central America going all the way through Mexico to the United States, journalists have found every time they interview these members of these caravans that economic hardships along with extortion or threats to their lives are the main drivers of them just leaving their country. And what have been some of the elements that have facilitated the explosion of extortion and some of the responses from state actors across the region? 
Four are the main drivers of extortion in the North Triangle countries. First is the Iron Fist policies, which basically are those policies that require heavy use of the military, the police, just to put gang members away in jail. So these basically created an exponential increase of the size of the population in prisons, which became a safe haven for gang members and extortionists to operate and, and just to call and extort from prison. For example, in, in a period of 10 years from 2006 to 2016, around the prison population in, in Guatemala increased three times and in El Salvador four times. Weapon availability is another catalyst. With revenues from extortion, gangs were able to buy bigger and better weapons to enforce the threat of violence. Uh, and as you know, the region is one of the most violent in the world. Mobile phones from 2016 to 2016 increased exponentially. For example, in this period of time, the, the phone lines increased 2.5 times, which enabled extorters to use phones not only to extort, but also to coordinate the collection of payments and the enforcement of threats. And finally, copycats. The threat of extortion from gangs became so widespread in the region that imitators began calling citizens to pretend or pretending to be part of a gang to request additional extortion payments. The difference is that copycats don't have the means to fulfill the threat of violence. And given the limited capability of state authorities to protect citizens, it enabled them to thrive and to add to the normalization of this crime. For example, in Guatemala, at least one-fourth of extortions are from copycats. And in El Salvador, it's estimated that around 70% are from imitators. This is a very particular case. There are other parts of the world, for example, in Sicily, in Italy, we were talking with Adio Pizzo, which is an organization, Italian organization that from civil society prevents and combats extortion. And when we were talking to them and we referred to them that this was happening in Latin America and especially in the Central American region, they were copycats from, from gang members. They, they were outraged in a way because they said this could never take place in Italy because the mafia would never allow someone to be called part of the mafia without being part of the group. So this is a very particular characteristic of extortion in the region, and it's widely available, and it's a huge part of the problem in the region. Thank you for that, Guillermo. We'll come back to you later on in the podcast. Guillermo Vasquez, a senior analyst here at the GI. So let's look at one of the Northern Triangle countries in more detail, Guatemala. Guatemala spent much of the latter half of the 20th century in a state of civil war. By the time it ended in 1996, the country had weak state institutions, a shrunken economy, a divided society, and crucially, a culture of violence. Today, Guatemala has the highest reported rates of extortion within the Northern Triangle countries. Evelyn Espinosa works with the Guatemalan think tank Dialogos as a research advisor focusing on homicides, violence and extortion. Extortion in my country is incredibly common and affects all sectors of society with public bus and taxi drivers and small entrepreneurs 
being the easiest and most common victims. So far, the overall crime rate reached 89 per 100,000 in July this year. Extortion tends to be focused on main urban areas such as Guatemala City, where the rate reached about 192 per 100,000 in July this year. So you can see it's almost 100% the, the national rate here just in Guatemala City, where the criminal activity is always among the, the greatest in the country. Some of the governmental responses for extortions have included the creation of specialized investigation units in order to give a more rapid response to victims. However, this has yet to have an impact on the crime rate. Based on the study that you are doing observing extortion data in the region, what are some of the strengths and challenges of the available statistics? It varies among institutions. We have in the region more than one source that collects, for instance, denounces from victims. Just here in, in Guatemala and as well as Honduras and El Salvador, victims can report extortions to both police and the public ministry. This is because police has offices in almost every city, whereas public ministry offices are usually located just in main urban areas. So uh, you have two sources in each of the countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and they are very different because both institutions use different formats to register the data from victims. For instance, public ministry tends to do a better job. However, the amount of missing data regarding some of the victims' information, such as sex and age, is huge. And this limits the quality of the analysis we can make. Here in Guatemala, victims tend to go to police first, but they are required to go to public ministry after they report to the police because it's the public ministry, the institution in charge of conducting the investigation for extortion. So I came to the conclusion that with the quality of the data that the institutions are collecting, it's very challenging to give policy recommendations to better address extortion in the region. And that one of the first things that should be done is to design a protocol that allow institutions to standardize the methods to collect data and to come to an agreement for those variables that should be recorded in order to allow them to take uh, better decisions in order to give a better response to the victims of extortions and to give certainty that the offenders will be punished if they involve in this type of criminal activity. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has created mobility restrictions across the world, including, of course, in Guatemala. Have those restrictions had an impact on extortion in the country? Mobility restrictions due to the pandemic have had an impact on crime in general, we uh, observed a decrease in homicide rate that went from 20 to 18 per 100,000 
With regard to extortion, the rate went from 92 to 89 per 100,000, specifically because bus drivers as well as some small entrepreneurs who I mentioned were the most commonly and easiest victims of this type of crime were not operating during this time. Law enforcement authorities, nonetheless, were able to receive electronic crime reports from victims of any crime. However, we did see a decrease in extortion rates. But right now, we are seeing an increment in this because we are returning to normality. And with that, all the crime that used to be normal is returning too. Evelyn, thank you very much for joining us on Deep Dive. Thank you for having me, Jack. That was Evelyn Espinosa from the Guatemalan think tank Dialogos. So as we've heard, weak state systems mean that citizens often see little point in reporting cases of extortion. Indeed, the former head of El Salvador's National Association of Private Enterprise said that society has accepted it and let it go because it's cheaper and easier to solve things directly with the gang member than go and file a police complaint. A truly sad indictment of the dire nature of the situation. So what are some of the practices to prevent and control extortion in the region? Pamela Ruiz is a consultant for the Coalition for Resilience Project and a member of the GI Network of Experts. So as part of the Coalition for Resilience Project, uh, some of the practices in order to prevent and control extortion in Central America fall into the prevention side, or into the criminal justice uh, intervention side. And so when we look at prevention programs, they really focus on creating safe spaces with recreational activities, developing employment skills, and workshops with parents to prevent youth from joining gangs and strengthening the social fabric of communities. For example, in El Salvador's uh, Urban Center for Welfare and Opportunity Initiatives, also known as CUBOS in Spanish, and Honduras's outreach centers, they really focus on education to prepare young people for the job market. Uh, there's also Guatemala's safe schools and Honduras's gang resistance education and training program, which provide children with resources to avoid gang membership and encourage parental involvement to develop and strengthen healthy family relations. And then lastly, in the prevention side, we also see Guatemala's prepaid card which aims to remove the incentive for extortion by reducing the amount of cash carried by transportation employees and users, as well as having cameras on the buses, which can help uh, with investigations and creating these safe stops with security on the premise. Um, with regard, when we look at criminal justice initiatives, we really see that the prevalence and the impact of extortion in the region has led to the creation of these special task forces and courts to reduce extortion and facilitate sentencing. And so the specialized task forces have accordingly developed new forms of reporting extortion, such as special, uh, special anti-extortion hotlines alongside in-person complaints, as well as implementing cell phone blockers in prisons, since those have been identified as areas where extortion calls um, are originate from. For example, the investigation capacities of DIPANDA, which is the National Division Against Gang Development in Guatemala, have allowed it to formulate a 90-10 typology for extortion where 90% of the extortions are conducted by opportunists, while only 10% is actually carried out by criminal groups or gangs um, that are very prominent in the region. And then lastly, in the case of Honduras, we also see anti-extortion courts uh, that began to operate in October of 2017 after a rigorous inter-institutional selection process. And the strength of the anti-extortion courts is really that it lies in its decentralized nature. 
with the courts exclusively reviewing extortion cases, which facilitate the efficient processing of cases, as well as having a core and qualified vetted personnel to provide sentences. Um, the extortion, the anti-extortion courts are a vital step in providing justice, not only for extortion victims, but also in preserving the rights of those accused and processing them through the criminal justice system in a timely manner. And so what are some of the common denominators and challenges of security and prevention practices? So the strength that all of these initiatives discuss really have is identifying the risk factors and implementing practical and targeted solutions to reduce extortion. In the case of prevention programs, we see that they've identified risk factors and implemented protective factors or buffers, such as creating the safe spaces for children to be in order to not be recruited by gang members, helping children achieve their educational goals or complete their education, as well as preparing them for the workforce. Uh, in terms of the specialized task forces, they really show this great level of development in terms of investigation capacity when comparing them to their non-specialized national forces. And in addition to that, they've also implemented these anti-extortion hotline, the cell phone blockers in prisons, and, uh, and identifying the concentration of extortion and its temporal trends, as well as evolution. So those are you know, those are the positive aspects of these programs. Now, the challenge that these initiatives really face is, in, is primarily in consistent data collection and analysis in order to empirically demonstrate the success of their interventions. And secondly, would be institutional trust. And so with regards to data, quite frankly, the availability, quality, and quantity of data possesses a series of challenges to studying extortion dynamics in Central America, and with regards to the criminal justice sector, there are obstacles to accessing official data from government institutions and or lack of data collected by initiatives for subsequent analysis and publication. And so really, the lack of exhaustive data collection on all relevant variables hampers the ability to conduct an analysis of the nature and extent of extortion and its consequences. And this is really important because understanding the country and the neighborhood context really would ensure that the participants' needs are addressed, program delivers uh, the intended outcomes, and limited resources are efficiently invested. Um, the second major challenge is really the limited resources, capacity, and in some instances, corruption of security personnel really decreases institutional legitimacy and in citizens' belief in the utility of reporting acts of extortion. For example, extortions are said to be underreported due to the belief that elements within the security institutions are corrupt and security forces have been accused of extortion. And so the second greatest challenge is really institutional trust. So which of these, in your view, would be the best recommendations to strengthen these practices? So based off my research experience and observations from living in the northern countries of Central America, some of the policy recommendations, first and foremost, is one, to increase the availability, the quality and the quantity of data collection and associated analysis to facilitate a thorough understanding of extortion dynamics, which would then enable the development of public policies, strategies to adequately address the multi-causal factors of extortion. Since extortion is multi-causal criminal phenomena, it requires a response by all impacted sectors, the prevention sector, the security sector, and we even need to start including the private sector. Ideally, each sector would exchange and interact with others. So for example, 
the security forces with vetted officers should provide preventative workshops in safe spaces run by schools and prevention programs to ensure trust can be built with youth and communities. The private sector could also partner with these prevention programs to develop employment opportunities for certified youth in these programs. And this relationship would require a mutual agreement whereby the private sector develops organizational and organizational needs alongside the prevention programs developing capacity within these areas and preparing youth for the workforce. Uh, we can have the civil society can assist the criminal justice sector with its capacity of data collection and conducting analysis, as well as evaluating programs and contributing to the creation of national strategic plans. So in conclusion, a multi-layered approach that incorporates all sectors of society affected by extortion would strengthen the social fabric through a common goal of safety and security. Pamela, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Pamela Ruiz, a consultant for the Coalition for Resilience Project and a member of the GI Network of Experts. Finally, let's look at Latin America more broadly. Although extortion is more pervasive in the Northern Triangle countries, it can also be found across Latin America in places like Colombia and even Argentina. Professor Lucia Damert from the University of Santiago in Chile has spent two decades conducting research into security, crime and police reform and consults with a number of different Latin American governments. She's also a member of the GI Network of Experts. My research focuses on this type of criminal governance mechanisms that have been developing for a while in which, you know, criminal organizations are taking a step towards becoming a state-like organization. You know, they provide security and they charge you with some taxes. And there are many people nowadays paying for that we call security to organize crime, either big organizations and also small organizations. So for instance, I found that not only businesses, small, medium and large, are hidden hard by these, you know, criminal activity, but also everyday life person. Sex torsion is, you know, it's growing strong. We also found that most transportation systems, at least in, in main countries in Latin America, that they are paying organized crime or criminal organizations to, you know, to be allowed to move around the city. We also found that there is an increasing level of extortive practices uh, linked to drug trafficking, but also linked to human trafficking. So my book will try to portray all those levels of, you know, extortive practices everywhere in Latin America, shedding some light over an issue that has been invisible for a while. Because, of course, in Latin America, we always talk about homicides, we always talk about drug trafficking, but in many sense, extortion is like the perfect crime because people are not going to go to the police or going to tell anyone that they have been extorted because it's really difficult to prove it. So most of the time, I think that Latin Americans are kind of kidnapped in the middle of, you know, uh, very corrupt or inefficient state forces, and on the other side, uh, highly skilled criminal organizations. Do you see similarities within the countries you're studying, or are they all different? Yeah, they're different. Uh, They're different in some areas. Extortion is a common practice, like Central America. It's uh, run by criminal organizations. 
in other countries such as in Peru, you have like copycats, you know, a small group of two or three individuals that uh, realize that extortion is, you know, pays better than drug trafficking. And they develop these schemes, but they are not highly organized or linked to anyone, but just themselves. So one of the common de- denominators, I will say, is the lack of state capacity, you know, because, of course, extortion practices develops when you have lack of state presence, but also when you have a state presence that is mostly corrupt or inefficient or violent. So in that sense, in many areas in Peru or in Brazil or in Colombia or in Ecuador, you found that, you know, citizens are basically relying on criminal organizations to get security, but not only security, but also, for instance, money, because there is an increase and with COVID-19, that's a trend that we are, you know, seeing now more and more everywhere in Latin America. There's an increasing practice of money loans that later on become part of these extortive practices. There are several issues and several forms, but the state lack of capacity is perhaps, you know, something that is throughout Latin America. And have you found a program or response that's actually shown promising results? Not really. Um... Because in Latin America, most of public policies in security areas are short-term. They lack political will. In most instances, you know, they're underfunded. And for the police and the justice system, extortion is an elusive crime because it's just difficult to find, you know, whoever was doing the extortion. And, And criminals are becoming more and more interested on, you know, using tools that are linked to technological devices and they're using people who are getting the money, for instance. So in if you go to some jails in Peru or in Bolivia, you will find women that are, are paying 10 or 5 years in prison because of extortion. In fact, they were the ones who actually received the money, but they didn't know why they received the money or, you know, what that money came from. They have no idea of the extortion practices. So my sense is that in in terms of extortion in Latin America, we are in the face of making this issue visible. Of course, there are initiatives, but at least in Central America, But they are very localized, and I'm not sure if those initiatives are actually hidden hard, the problem, or going to the core of the situation. Lucia, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Great. That was Professor Lucia Damert from the University of Santiago in Chile, and she is also a member of the GI Network of Experts. So what can be done about extortion in Central America and beyond? Guillermo, if I can bring you back in, Community resilience is really important to fight against extortion. So what are some of the activities that the GI has implemented to promote community resilience against extortion? And do you have any recommendations to actually tackle this crime in the region? Well, first of all, it it needs to be understood or it's, it's important to understand that the topic in the region is difficult to discuss because it creates fears and anxiety from stakeholders. It's, in a way, the elephant in every room, in every house, in every business in the region. 
and few are willing to talk about it. That's why in 2018, the GI along inside crime began researching extortion in the region, which became the report a criminal culture extortion in Central America, which was presented in May 2019 in the Northern Triangle countries. These allowed us to start a regional conversation with the Coalitions for Resilience Project, which using the presentation of the report, we invited participants to become members of a network of experts against extortion. Today, we have over 80 policy implementers, security officials, members from civil society, academia, regional experts that regularly discuss different aspects of extortion. As a result, the project has been able to identify and document over 10 practices to prevent and combat extortion in the region, as well as to develop policy analysis and recommendations to strengthen the results. The project has also enabled discussions to observe and analyze how the crime has developed during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the availability and comparability of data in the region, which, by the way, is not readily available, mainly because of the pandemic, but also because it's not comparable because there's not a regional protocol to gather extortion data. Additionally, based on the discussions of the regional meeting with the experts, with the experts of the network that was held in Guatemala during the summer of 2019, the Coalitions for Resilience Project developed a manual and a guide for community resilience against extortion. These two documents are the basis or the foundation for an e-learning platform that will allow over 30 regional experts to train themselves on the topic as well, on how to use tools to better replicate this knowledge, to foster dialogues and workshops at the municipal and community level to promote resilience against this crime. Thank you again, Guillermo, for coming on the Deep Dive podcast. Thank you, Jack. Muchas gracias. That was Guillermo Vasquez, a senior analyst here at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. That's it for this episode. A special thank you to Guillermo, Pamela, Lucia, and Evelyn. If you'd like to learn more about extortion in Central America, head over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where you can visit the GI's dedicated extortion project and also subscribe to the GI Extortion newsletter. There is a link to the paper, A Criminal Culture Extortion in Central America, in the summary to this episode. The website also has loads of other transnational organized crime content and publications ranging from drug trafficking to environmental crime. There are also other podcasts available from the GI, such as Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, The Impact, Coronavirus and Organized Crime, and our new podcast, Faces of Assassination. We'll be launching more podcast series in the near future, including a Spanish language one, so keep an eye on the GI's social media channels for that announcement. Just search for The Global Initiative and you'll find us. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Share it around as well. It all helps us improve the show. And let's be honest, it only takes a few seconds and it does help us get noticed. You've been listening to Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.